Good evening, everybody. So we are uh, doing a series in the Psalms. Uh, if you haven't been here before, uh, we are doing about a three-month uh, series and going through the Psalms. And uh, tonight's Psalm <coughs> is Psalm 58. And frankly, one of the reasons why some people don't like to read through the Psalms is because of Psalms like this. Uh, you're reading through the Psalms and then you read something and you're just like, whoa, that's like raining down curses on somebody's head. Uh, and I'm not sure I can relate to that. Uh, so we're going to talk about that tonight and we're going to uh, uh, sort of take the bull by the horns. Uh, so let's uh, read, uh, I'll read Psalm 58 uh, and our uh, closing uh, that we do is, to, I will say this is the word of the Lord uh, and our response is thanks be to God. Uh, and it's interesting because when we sang uh, that song, just hearken back to that uh, Psalm 82, which we sang, and you hear a lot of that uh, in this psalm that we have in front of us, when it says, do you decree what is right, you gods? The gods is referring to leaders uh, or authorities and rulers of this world. So here's Psalm, 60, uh, psalm 58. This is the word of God. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, <clears throat> so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O oh God, break the teeth in their mouths, Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is the word of the Lord. So do you pray like this? <laughs> um, well, I'm going to not necessarily argue you should pray like this, but I, uh, I'm going to be arguing that you should be able to rejoice in a prayer like this uh, and to some degree take it to heart uh, and even make it your own prayer. Uh, so uh, we'll just go to walk through this a little bit. First of all, uh, my first point is just the following. The Bible teaches a final judgment by God and does not shy away from that. Uh, and that is um, something that we see all through scripture and we see it in this uh, passage in front of us. Uh, it says, surely there is a reward for the righteous and surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now I just want to just dwell on the fact that this is not just some kind of like part of the Bible that talks about this. Um, I put a quote from R.C. Sproul on the front of the bulletin uh, that actually almost everything we know about hell uh, is from the lips of Jesus. Uh, you have passages like this in the Old Testament that hint at it, that sort of indicate it and so on, but if you go through the Gospels, uh, really uh, he taught more about the existence of hell than any other teacher or any other book uh, in the Bible. Uh, we see that uh, constantly going uh, through that. And uh, it's also not the case that this is kind of a doctrine that should be sort of ignored or we're sort of embarrassed of. If you look at how the Bible treats it, there's actually rejoicing about it. 
Uh, and just for example, uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, we read part of that uh, earlier uh, in the service. In Revelation uh, chapter 19, it's in your additional scripture, it says, after this I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So this is a, in heaven, people rejoicing uh, over God's judgments. And we, I put a bunch of other additional scriptures which I won't read, but you can see numerous places in which people are not just saying, oh, I'm so embarrassed about this doctrine, but you know, it's what we gotta believe, but there's actually a rejoicing uh, over it. Uh, so why, why is that? Why is there rejoicing? over it. it. may not be something that you can relate to, but I would actually argue that the great number of people in history can all really relate to this. Uh, so numbers, uh, I don't have statistics in front of you, but if you read sort of things in economics and so on, uh, like 99% of most people in history, uh, even up uh, to very close to the present day, have lived in subsistence squalor, uh, almost barely hanging on and near starvation. And famines and starvation has been a major theme throughout history. Uh, wars and people being killed off in mass numbers, famines, floods, you name it. People uh, mostly have not been uh, the elite. And so, you know, sometimes we read, you know, uh, stories of kings and princes, uh, princesses in the Middle Ages, and we think, well, that would be such a nice time to live. Well. I can almost guarantee you that if you lived back then, you wouldn't have been one of the princes. <laughs> you would have been one of the serfs, you know, out living in the mud. Uh, and you would have been near starvation every day of your life. And so for a great number of people in the world throughout history, it is a message of hope to say that God will judge those who are oppressing you uh, and that the oppressors don't win and that those who are taking all of the things uh, that you deserve, who are grinding you under their feet, who are making you their slaves and serfs uh, and peasants and so on, that their day will come and they will be held accountable. And that's a message of hope that your life is not meaningless. It's not as though you just grow up, live in mud your whole uh, life and then you die and that's it. Uh, but that God is paying attention to what everyone is doing and he will call those uh, oppressors to account. Now you may not feel like you've been oppressed and so you may not be able to relate to that, but a lot of people this, uh, hear this, this is good news. Your oppressors don't win. The oppressors will be torn down. Uh, and um, we need to hear that. We need to understand that uh, there is hope given to us. And probably really more than anything is just the idea that God sees and pays attention. Because if you are living your life uh, and you know, maybe you don't feel like you're living in near starvation, but you may feel like you are oppressed in a sort of a way in that nobody cares about you uh, and nobody pays attention to you and nobody is uh, really doing anything for you. And maybe you've been a victim of some pretty bad things. Uh, in a room with this many people, there's a good chance that some of you have been seriously abused or oppressed uh, and you did not get justice for that. Uh, this is good news that God will judge uh, and that he will not forget you, and he will remember what's been done to you. And even though you may feel like you're not so different from that peasant who lived all their lives near starvation, uh, and you feel like your life is just you know, one of many and billions of people, 
Uh, this is good news that God pays attention uh, to you. But here's the kicker. Uh, and it's maybe, again, maybe sometimes why we rebel against this. Um, this is not just threatening to other people, right? This is not just those oppressors out there need to be judged, uh, while that is true. This is also, you know, rebounds back onto us. What if I've oppressed somebody? What if I've been one of the people who's the oppressor? What if I've done something like that? And um, David, uh, in this psalm, uh, says some words that at first you might say, well, that sounds really judgmental. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray even from birth, speaking lies. But actually, just a few psalms before this, in Psalm 51, very close uh, in the scriptures, in Psalm 51, in verse 3, David says, I was born in sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is saying that I'm in the same boat, uh, that I also am liable to judgment. It's not like those wicked people out there, but it's me. I'm, I'm in the same category. Uh, so what do I do about that? Well, I'm going to move on to talking about that. But again, I just want to leave you with this idea that on the one hand, there is a great hope that there is justice and the oppressors don't win and God will pay attention to everything that's happened. But it immediately opens up the question, uh, well, what about me? What about my sins and when I've oppressed other people? Uh, and oftentimes in history, uh, you know, it's sometimes you know, said that in the pecking order of chickens in a barnyard, the most oppression is at the bottom of the pecking order. That the chickens at the bottom of the pecking order are the ones that attack each other the most viciously uh, because they're trying to get one leg up over the next one just a little bit down. And I can say that about my own life. I remember when I was in high school uh, and I was pretty low on the social rungs and I could be very cruel to those who were just a little bit lower than me. And so I was in the category of oppressor even though I would also seen myself as oppressed uh, in some ways by the way uh, people treated each other. Okay, well, let me move on. Let me move on. Uh, my second uh, point here is uh, how can we reconcile this kind of prayer with Jesus' teaching to pray for our enemies. Um, again, I'm arguing that this is not something that is undone by Jesus. It's not as though the New Testament says, well, just forget about the Old Testament. That's sometimes a picture that people have. Uh, but rather, uh, Jesus is constantly quoting the Old Testament, uh, and he's also talking about judgment through and through the gospel. So how do we reconcile this with Jesus' teaching? Well, I have four really quick points here. Um, the first is that we leave vengeance in the hands of God. That um, you really can't miss uh, that this is a prayer to God of someone saying, I'm putting this in your hands, God. That there are these oppressors, uh, but this is not personal vengeance. This is not someone who is saying, I am going to take it out on my enemies. But it is a prayer to God for God to be the judge. And so a teaching all the way through uh, both Old Testament and New Testament is that we do not take personal vengeance. Uh, so this is my next point actually. Um, Leviticus 19 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I don't know, maybe you didn't know that when Jesus said you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he was quoting the book of Leviticus. Uh, so he wasn't coming with new doctrine. 
but he was quoting uh, what Moses said uh, so many hundreds of years earlier. Uh, and specifically says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. In some ways a grudge is just sort of like a slow burn vengeance, right? Like I'm going to just passively uh, be sort of grumpy with you and that'll sort of work out my vengeance. So uh, both Old Testament and New Testament say that we do not take out vengeance uh, and we in fact uh, leave a judgment in the hands of God. Now secondarily, the Bible will talk about sometimes that there are legitimate authorities whose job is to punish evil. Uh, and so we see in scripture sometimes it, it being said, you know, you are actually an unjust judge if you let this wicked person continue to oppress uh, and, to, and to victimize people when it was your duty to actually stop them uh, and to punish them. Uh, and so uh, there is a place for authorities to punish, but by and large, most of us are not in that position, and so we turn that over to God and we leave God uh, to be the one who is the judge. Uh, the next point on, on this is, uh, when we pray for our enemies or we pray for the wicked, we don't pray for them to succeed in their evil plans. When Jesus said, pray for your enemies, he didn't mean pray that your wicked enemies would succeed in their wickedness. Uh, that's not uh, what his message was, but rather we pray for them to repent. We pray for them to see the error of their ways and to turn. Now we can uh, also pray prayers like this in the psalm that they would be stopped one way or the other. And so you could say in, in one way or another we pray for God to stop the wicked. They could be stopped by God's judgments, whether in this earth uh, or in the next, or we pray uh, better uh, that they would repent, that they would, they would no longer uh, be doing those things. Uh, but we're, when we pray for the wicked, we're not praying for them to succeed in their wickedness, we're praying for them uh, to turn from that. Um, let me just uh, make this point too, and I think this is really uh, crucial at a personal level. Uh, loving your enemy does not mean pretending that they didn't do something bad. Let me say that again, loving your enemy does not mean pretending that they didn't do anything uh, that was bad. Uh, there's a lot of people who are torn up about uh, feeling they ought to forgive somebody and uh, feel they just can't forgive that person because what they think they're being told to do is to pretend it wasn't so bad. Uh, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is just the opposite. Forgiveness is saying it was evil and I am going to bless rather than curse. I am not going to punish you. I'm not going to take out vengeance. I am going to swallow that, so to speak, uh, and take it upon myself rather than to do harm to you because of what you've done to me. So forgiveness, you could say, you know, when Jesus was dying on the cross uh, and he said, forgive them, it wasn't because we weren't wicked. It was precisely because we were wicked that he had to die. But his forgiveness was that he would take that upon himself and suffer that himself rather than put that suffering onto us. And so when we are asked to forgive people, uh, we are not being called to pretend that they didn't do something bad. Actually, if you try to pretend people didn't do something bad, you don't give yourself the chance to forgive them. Uh, you're actually uh, trying to convince yourself that something uh, isn't true. And lastly, this is all sort of in, the, uh, in my short list of points of how to, to deal with this uh, in the light of uh, Jesus' command to pray for our enemies. Uh, one thing you can't miss in the Psalms is that sometimes uh, David, uh, who was the king of Israel, uh, is praying in his kingly authority. 
And so it's not really so much in this psalm that we have in front of us, but there's a number of psalms in which David says, I want my enemies to be defeated and to be destroyed. Uh, he can pray that because he is in the role of an authority and he could say as a prophet, uh, my enemies are God's enemies. And in that role, he's actually playing a role, uh, what we call a type of Jesus himself. He's actually in the role like Jesus is of being the king who is the judge. And so uh, in that case, we, we can't ourselves say, okay, I know that my enemies are definitely enemies of God and God, you need to strike them down. Uh, it might be, I might uh, believe that, but I don't have the authority to pray that kind of a prayer. Uh, but Jesus does. And David, even as the kingly authority and the prophet who had inspiration from God, could say, I know that these people uh, do need to be uh, judged. However, we can still relate to this kind of prayer by saying, God, I pray that your final judgment will come uh, and come quickly. We pray that God's kingdom would come. That's in the Lord's prayer, right? God, that you would come and that you would defeat the oppressors and that you would prevent the wicked from winning. And so while we can't say, okay, I know, you know, this person here, here, and here, those are definitely the wicked people, you need to destroy those. Uh, we can pray that God's judgment would come quickly and that God would set things to right in this world and would prevent the oppressor uh, from oppressing. And like the people who call out in that Psalm, how long, O Lord, until you judge, we can say, God, come quickly, come quickly, Lord Jesus, uh, and set up your kingdom with your king, kingly authority. Okay, this is my last uh, uh, topic then. How can we reconcile this with God's love? Perhaps many of you are comfortable with saying, well, I can understand praying that God would be the judge because that is his role. Uh, but wait a minute, like how can God even be a judge? That bothers me that God would be a judge. Uh, how can we reconcile this with what God says is that he loves people? So let me remind you, this is a, a verse that you used to see at football games. Uh, I don't know if you still uh, see that as much of football games, but you would see this verse, uh, John 3.16. Someone took it upon themselves to buy a ticket to every televised game. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember this, right? And hold up a sign that said John 3.16. I don't know how effective that was, but uh, it got people remembering that verse. Uh, it's a great verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now, uh, that is a statement of love that God uh, did not leave us, again, as the people who are both oppressed and oppressors, who both sinned against and sinners. He didn't leave us where we were uh, in this broken world, but actually he loved us enough to send his son to die for our sins so that our sins could be atoned for and we could be forgiven of those sins and thereby be brought into his presence and not have all these judgments which we read about here uh, falling on us, uh, uh, punishments which we deserve. Uh, again, I just want to point out, though, if you just keep reading John 3.16, just go a little further, the same theme pops up again, right? So Jesus goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the, of the Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, if I was to summarize sort of the, the, the big picture here, on the one hand, we have a picture that God incredibly is concerned about us, that we have a dignity, to use a word, in that he pays attention to us. If you think about it, the opposite of love is not hate. This is kind of a truism in some cases. The opposite of love, some of you already know, right? It's not caring, right? Ignoring, not even paying attention to somebody. To some degree, if you actually passionately hate somebody, you're, at least you're passionately caring about them. They matter, they're a person who is significant to you. Whereas the opposite of love is to say, you are irrelevant to me, I don't even pay attention, you're nothing to me. And so what we can say is that God does not ignore anybody. Everyone has the dignity of being paid attention to. But of course, that puts us in a difficult spot because if God is paying attention, that can make me feel judged, right? It can make me feel like I'm in a, in a, a really difficult spot. And God's love is that he sent his son to die for us so that we could be forgiven of those sins and we could be brought into his presence and not have all these curses uh, which we see fall on us. But here's the thing, and Jesus says it right in John 3, 16, uh, that the people, even though Jesus was the light, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. To come to God, to be forgiven, requires us to humble ourselves. It requires us to come before him humbly, not demanding his forgiveness, but to recognize uh, that we need his grace, that we need something that we don't deserve and we need to be forgiven. Uh, and there will be some people for whom that is impossible. There will be people who will say, I would rather go down in flames in my pride than to bend the knee uh, and to ask God for forgiveness. Uh, and that's a hard truth, but we know some people, if you think about it, who seem to us uh, to be very much in that, in that position. Uh, this is a message for all of us to say, um, God loves you, but there is one way to approach him, and that is humbly. Uh, you cannot come into his presence demanding uh, and saying, how dare you judge me? Uh, that is the one stance we cannot take toward God. God wants us to come near to him, but we need to come near him like the prodigal son who comes and says, forgive me, uh, because I have shunned you and I have done things uh, against you. And so God is calling us, he's calling all people to repentance with a promise that if you repent, this judgment will not fall on you, uh, that you can be forgiven. But it requires the humility of saying, this is for me, I deserve this. These oppressors are not just those guys out there, but I'm sometimes one of the oppressors, and I see myself uh, under that same judgment. And that is uh, the humility that we need in coming to God. I'm just gonna finish with talking about a very famous sermon uh, by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And some of you probably have heard this. Now, I don't know what some of you, maybe some of you have read it, some not, but a lot of people think that that was a so-called hellfire and brimstone sermon uh, where he was pounding the pulpit and screaming and yelling at people, actually completely opposite. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a very mild-mannered guy, and he read from his notes. So he didn't, he, he would have a manuscript he'd write out, and he simply read it out loud all the way through. Uh, so he was not a pulpit pounder uh, screaming or anything like that. 
But it played, that sermon played an enormous role in revival in America in the 1700s just because of what he actually said, what the content was. And it wasn't really that dramatic of a content. It was really just what we have in scripture. He said, uh, in effect, uh, there is a God. He has infinite power uh, and you don't. Uh, and you are liable to him for everything that you've ever done to give an account. And how does that make you feel? If you think about that, that should be a scary proposition. That should be a frightening proposition that you have offended personally God who has infinite power. And you are liable to him and he pays attention. And if we stop there, that is a very scary thought. But of course the Bible doesn't stop there. Old Testament and New Testament talk about the grace that comes to God as we saw in the Psalm that we read in our uh, prayer of confession. Uh, let me read that uh, just again. Uh, from Psalm uh, 32, and I'll end with this. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. These are statements of grace uh, for us so that we don't need to live in fear of God, but rather can draw near to him in humility. Let's pray.